she said, but I'm really, really sad. You missed out on the community we built here. We've you know, all lived together, been to the good times and bad times together. We share stories, we take care of each other, we support each other, we're always there. Don't judge each other. And she said, I'm so, so sad you missed all those moments and those opportunities to build that community with us. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and you're about to hear Mike's adoption story. He spoke with me from his home in Saco, Maine. Mike was cruising through childhood until he was told he was adopted. The news shook Mike's confidence in relationships, and the aftermath lingered in self-doubt, creeping through his personal and professional life. When he found his maternal family, he was welcomed in, and they lamented that they missed so much time apart. Now, Mike chairs the National Council for Adoption and coaches others on bringing their best selves to every relationship through a process of building personal trust communities. This is Mike's journey. Mike grew up in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, on Blueberry Lane. He recalled when he was nine years old in the 1970s, his parents called him downstairs to the family room. The room had wood paneling on the walls, a shag carpet on the floor, and a wood-burning stove and tinfoil on the antenna to get TV reception. Mike plopped down in his favorite beanbag chair for whatever his parents wanted to talk about. My parents came down, they sat on the couch, I was in the beanbag chair, and they wanted to share something with me, they said... They took a few seconds to look at each other and then looked at me and my mother announced that they loved me very, very much and that I was adopted. And to them, it was a piece of news to convey. To me, my sense of belonging, sense of family was shattered. I just couldn't believe what I heard. And I didn't have the language, the wherewithal to even process what that all meant. And my parents, obviously, back in the 60s, there was not a lot of sharing of information. So even if I tried to push it, I'm sure they wouldn't have had a lot of information. But it was it was it was earth shattering for me. And a few days later, heading out of the bus stop, I remember walking down Blueberry Lane was sort of a gradual but a long road. And I remember thinking to myself, God, who gives up a kid? Like who would do that? What did I do wrong? And as soon as those words came out of my mouth, I thought, oh my God, that could happen again. And I made a conscious choice, although at nine years old, I'm not sure it was intentional as I'd like to think it was now, Mm -hmm. that the only way that I would go through life would have to be perfect. And I would have to minimize risks and minimize the amount of things I would do that weren't in relation to perfect. And it shaped me for quite a long time, good or bad, based on what I was explained at nine years old. Wow. That must have been so tough to think. One, how could this be like news that is dropped on me? And two, I've got to be perfect in order to keep this from happening again, as if you had some control over it. Yeah. And again, you know, as you as you look back on your life, you realize that sometimes you blame others and get resentful versus just stepping back and trying to be grateful and realize I'm very blessed. But I didn't know that at the time. So, yeah, it's, it was highly stressful throughout my life because you could never fully engage in relationships 
there was always, you know, if you had someone who was trying to get close and build a relationship with you, immediately I'd back off of fear that if they ever really knew who I was, then they may not like me. In fact, uh, a lady doing who I met later in my life said to me at age 40, 41, she told me a couple of years ago, she goes, Mike, when I met you and I was 40 at the time, I'm 57 today. She said, I thought, boy, this guy has got this question in his head. And she was right. She was able to discern it. She was head of learning development. So she had a background in this kind of thing. She said, I could tell Mike was wrestling with this question in his head, which was, if people really knew me, would they like me? And I absolutely, and I don't believe I was intelligent enough, especially at that age, to have that question specifically in my head. But I absolutely 100% operated in my life thinking, okay, I'm going to do, I got to mow the lawn. Dad wants the lawn mowed. My brother doesn't want to do it. I got to get done. Because if I don't, I'm going to get yelled at or I might get abandoned. Okay, the wood's got to come in from outside. I better just get it done. Or, you know, things were going on with friendships and they could go further. I was like, nope, I'm not going to engage. In eighth grade, Mike's family moved to another town of 10,000 people. It was the kind of town that took its high school sports seriously and celebrated homecoming in a big way, building themed and decorated floats. The new town would be a fresh start for Mike. At homecoming time, Mike was helping to build some floats, which was a great way to get to know some of the other kids. Mike got word that one of the prettiest girls in school liked him, so he asked her to go to the homecoming dance, and she said yes. I went to the homecoming dance, and as, you know, carloads of people, parents letting the kids out or whatever, she never showed up. And I found out later that she was drinking and just never came because of that. But at the time, it was just another, like, nail in the coffin saying, you're right, Mike, you just can't trust anybody. They're always going to abandon you. Another good example you tried, and it just didn't work, so don't try it again. And so just I had, I think, enough of those experiences at young enough age that they started building on themselves. And I had others, too, and it's, you know, all on me, but I just really kept unfortunately having those kind of experiences that related to relationships when I would engage and try to dive in. And I contributed to it. You know, I've got friends of mine in college and high school who say, Jesus, Thorny, you were a great athlete for the town and this, that, and the other, but you never really, you just were there. And they said, now that I know this, I wish I had known it then. That's fascinating. So what I hear you saying is basically people that you've later revealed your adoption and your struggle to are able to think back on the kid you used to be, the person in the community, and they could see how detached you were from the rest of the community. And now that they know it is in the context of being an adoptee, feeling like you could potentially be abandoned, feeling like personal relationships were not worth investing in because people were going to leave or leave you, they can see how different you were and probably could have been had they known and, and engaged you in a different way. Yeah, and so I, if you look back on it, it was April uh, 1974, April 10th, I believe it was. So Hank Aaron was about to break the home run record from Babe Ruth, who was now he was a real person, but very mystical. And here's Hank Aaron, a person of color. So the society at the time in 1974, is a lot of racial tensions in the country. So it was half the country did not want to see a man of color break this record. And the other half was just so excited to be part of history. And my dad let me stay up late. We watched it. And I remember, you know, watching that game, but more importantly, watching Hank Aaron when he hit the home run the fourth inning off Al Dowling and running around the bases and people coming out of the stands and running with him. And I thought, this is a man of huge grace 
integrity despite all the people that were throwing things and saying things about him. I said, man, this guy is just pushing against the status quo. He's just high integrity. He just seems like his dignity is holding it high. It's what everyone trying to tear him down. I thought, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a professional athlete. And so I was. I found sports was like the arenas, the theater, so to speak, of sports was the one place I could be who I was because what I uncovered through sports was that if the coaches found value in you, in other words, you could perform, they would invest in you. And so for me, it was like, okay, these coaches, you know, investing time, energy, effort to teach, train, and develop me. So I gravitated to sports. You know, I could be an angry kid in sports because in certain sports that played really well because I could be aggressive and I could perform and people would be giving me reward for that. Unfortunately, you know, that, that lesson ended up hurting me later in life, but that was what I learned. So it was the one area that I could be who I was. So the kids that knew me, buyers at retail that I called them later in life, when they now know my story, they're like, Jesus, that makes so much sense. They could never figure it out. And so now that they have that, you know, understand the contrast, they're like, okay, that makes so much sense. I wish you had said something. I wish I had known. Yeah, I can't go back on it, but what I would love to hope is that kids that are wrestling with these kind of things, that I can somehow play a role in shrinking that time between feeling that, you know, really, really bad about being abandoned and then finally figuring out owning your story, you know, understanding your story and owning it. If I could help try to shrink that time down, because it doesn't go away, Damon. I don't think I still deal with that abandonment periodically, but I've got tools now. I've got this personal trust community of people around me to help me navigate it. But how do we try to shrink the amount of time that people have to live and go through it? Because it's tiring. It's exhausting. It doesn't help your relationships, and it hurts your ability to grow as a human being and as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. May I ask just quickly, in terms of yeah. team sports, you know, you've said that you didn't necessarily invest in interpersonal relationships, but team sports can be very sort of camaraderie driven. You're, you're in the trenches together trying to win this battle. Did you connect with your teammates? How was it to be a team sports player, but also feel detached from personal relationships? That's a great insight. Uh, so thank you for bringing that up because I, I would give you both in sports and career, the two things are parallel paths with the same. Yes, I cared about my teammates because they were going to be contributors to the outcome we wanted. So I was fortunate enough to be captain of my high school baseball team, high school basketball team, and college baseball team. And those were all chosen by the players. So they saw the leadership in me, and they, they obviously saw something that said, this is the right guy to be our leader. At the same time, personally, though, I still didn't invest in those relationships outside of the fact I invested to a point where I could help them be a better player on the court or on the field or whatever we, whatever sport we were playing because that benefited the team and our success versus not just doing that but building the bridge off the field or the court and getting to know them as human beings, knowing what their struggles were and so on. And that's to me, was where the loss was for them and for me, quite frankly, because there was enough people during those days that I didn't understand it, but they'd come to me and ask me, you know, life questions or things about non, you know, the non-typical stuff because they felt like I might be able to have a good perspective on it. And I never understood why they asked me, but years later, they would just say, well, we just, you were just like balanced. You seem to have a good head and your shoulders. 
And so the loss for me and for them was I used sports, yes, to feel like I belonged somewhere and, and that helped me. And I got, I taught, I was learned a lot about leadership, but I never carried it over to a point where I was getting relationships built beyond the benefit we got as teammates and players. And that's a, that was a big loss and sad to admit that. Same thing in my career. I hit 40 and I figured, hey, I must be doing something right. I keep getting promoted. Now I'm president of a $110 million company. And both those experiences from college sports and then first time being a leader like that, I muscled my way through that. And the people that were surrounding me, they obviously felt like I was a good leader. I wouldn't have been moved in those directions. But they were all just because the people were there to help me get where I needed to go versus thinking about it more holistically. And in both cases, you know, I got derailed because of that. Mm. Before, I want to take us back for a moment because I, I want to hear a little bit about your relationship after you learned that you were an adoptee. So your parents, I presume at, what would you say, eight or nine years old, you were given this information, have basically told you that you are not biologically related. And you said that it affected you like literally the next day walking to the bus stop. How was yep. your relationship with your adopted parents growing up? Tell me a little bit about before you learned you were adopted and then tell me about your relationship with them after you learned you were adopted. Yeah, I, I'm sad to say, and I saw a therapist, Christine Payne, years ago, who was an expert on children that are put up for adoption at birth, never held by their mother, put in a home, like a, you know, a home with a, a bunch of other children, so never held, and then being adopted at five months. And so I damage is the wrong word, but the psychological pieces of that is I forget almost everything happened to me as a child. So I don't have a lot of memories before I was told that, um, unfortunately. And she was, you know, open to taking me into a very dark place if I wanted to try to remember all that. I don't remember a lot. After that, again, I was so concerned about being abandoned again. I really never wanted to push anything or ask. I had other issues. And with my parents, I felt like, yeah, they were very busy. They they were entrepreneurs. They both worked full-time and part-time throughout it, and they also had other businesses they started. And I just felt my dad was an interesting guy. He was 5'3", lost his hearing at 6 in one ear, and so he had a lot of challenges as a human being, you know, bow-legged, I mean, but he was very good as a guidance counselor in school. But he was quite a challenge at home. I, I, he was you know, verbally abusive to my mom. My mom grew up in a very difficult home, had no money. Father died when she was 13. So my dad is this, you know, everything's very perfect life. Go to church every Sunday, chores on Saturday kind of life. That's how he grew up. My mother, nobody at home. Mother worked the 3 to 11 shifts. So the two of them, very different lifestyles growing up. So it's hard to watch the two of them battle quite a bit and have a lot of disagreements. And it really was difficult for me to respect my father because of that. And I always felt bad for my mother and I always tried to help her. But I could never fully dive in and be there for them as I should be as I look back on it because of the fear that if I ever tried to step in or, you know, fully engage, they could just say you're out. And so, again, I don't think my relationship was good or bad. I just tried to be good. And my mother would say I was great. I you know, did what I was supposed to do. I did the chores. I was not a problem growing up. I didn't get into a lot of trouble. So I think that would be their version of the story. 
but at the same time, they knew something wasn't right. So I, I just never really understood them. I was always angry about everything. And I did my best not to display that, except in sports, I could let it go a little bit. So I, I don't know. As I've gotten older, I've begun to have a better appreciation. A lot of stress in the life. Didn't make a lot of money. We weren't poor by any means. We did fine. That's sort of my life as I thought about it. Since Mike wasn't deeply invested in relationships, he spent his teenage years alone many days. He read a lot of sports articles and watched a lot of television. However, Mike developed a penchant for observing other people, a skill he called discernment, or being able to assess people's situations, observe their behaviors, and empathize with them. In his reading, he observed athletes like baseball stars Roberto Clemente and Hank Aaron, tennis icon Billie Jean King, and legendary boxer Muhammad Ali. Mike admired their drive to push the envelope and live their lives out loud to drive the changes they viewed as necessary in our society. Even though he was alone, Mike was present and learning. I felt, you know what, I'm just going to know as much as I can about how life works and get my MBA in life because I've got to take care of myself. And so there was the value, that was probably the one value that did come out of it at the end of the day was I was very observant. Other thing I did when people are at the proms and all that stuff, I had a basketball court at the house and the garage was set up in such a way that there was the foundation was probably 12, 15 inches off the ground. And so depending if I wanted to be the pitcher in game seven of the World Series so that we could win it as a Red Sox fan, I would pretend that's who I was. And if I was on the basketball court, I was Larry Bird with two seconds to go, hitting a three-pointer to win it, or going to the free throw line as Jojo White, the Celtic player who I loved. And I, I think I lived my life that way by trying to be somebody else. And it was always somebody else connected to sports and music were the two things I always gravitated to. So even when people were off at the dance, you were home playing sports and practicing by yourself. Yeah, because even when I was a sophomore in high school, a gal that was a junior, um, she invited me to her house for a date, which back in those days may sound funny to have a girl invite you, but Ellen invited me over, and I just, I cringe when I think about it today, but I wasn't much better when I asked my wife to marry me. We could have that story. (laughs) I went into the house. Her mother let me in. I said, hi. I was so nervous. I was just stressed. Went down in a basement with a TV on. I think I said hi, bye with some popcorn, and that ended. That was it. And I just was so afraid to even try to have a conversation or share anything. It was just, it's humiliating to think about it today. I just didn't know any better. So, yeah, when I did try to have some sort of, I went out one time with some friends. They were roller skating was a big thing in our area back in the mid-80s, early 80s. And so I went out one time with some friends, and I did decide to have a beer or two before we went in there to be part of the crowd, so to speak. So, you know, what? I'm, I'm, I'm senior in high school, whatever. And that was a bad idea because I'd never drank before, number one. Then I tried to roller skate and that before, number two. And so mm. whenever I did decide to, to engage or step out, it just didn't go well. And I'm at, to blame for that. It's not anybody else's fault. And so I know for sure people that were friends and people that wanted to have a relationship just said, you know what, it's just not worth it. It's too hard. It's too stressful. So, yeah, that's why I've gone to this personal trust community concept in the last 15 years because I, I now understand it. But I had to get hit over the head by a two-by-four 
as a 40-year-old to finally wake up and realize this is just no way to go through life. What could Mike possibly have meant by waking up and getting hit by a 2x4 when he was 40 years old? Mike tells the story of meeting one of the most influential people in his life, a woman named Doran. Mike had risen to be the president of the teen division of Russell Athletic, the clothing apparel company. His family had moved to Georgia for his job, and Mike was looking forward to doing some great stuff. Fifteen months after the move, Mike was fired. The company told him his job was eliminated. The reality was it came down to lack of emotional intelligence, lack of self-awareness, and that nine-year-old boy came back. I'm abandoned again. My friends are going to leave. My wife's going to leave. My kids won't love me anymore. All that came roaring back, and I felt less than. And so that was the turning point, and I mentioned that story because it's irrelevant. It's very relevant to what happened next. So it started as I kind of processed that and took me a few days to process it. Again, went home that afternoon and shot baskets by myself in the driveway waiting for my kids to come home from school. I didn't know what they would say or feel, but we ended up going to Disney a few days after that. We planned it, and our kids rode me pretty hard about getting fired, and they thought it was funny, and they kind of – no, they did a good job. They didn't do it in a mean-spirited way. And I realized, you know, my kids still love me. My wife loves me. And I decided at that moment to learn from it. So I got some really hard-to-hear feedback from people I respected, people that I now refer to as part of my personal trust community. And so I tried to learn from it versus be angry about it. And I went to work for Yankee Candle for two reasons. One, I decided I need to be around a company that cares about its people and wants to develop those people and also a branded business away from sporting goods so that I could learn other skills because I was worried that if I didn't have other skills, that when I get to be 50, 55, I may be someone who's not worth it anymore because a lot of people I knew at that age that had been with the company a long time were getting fired. So those are the two reasons I went. I met Doran there. She was director of learning development, and she spent a lot of time with me because she understood that I was wrestling with something, couldn't couldn't say it out loud. I couldn't, but she really got to me and it took me a while to trust her. But she had her own, you know, upbringing that really I resonated with. And the two of us worked together and she started me down the path of, hey, Mike, you know, your people love the one-on-ones. They feel very comfortable here in the year you've been with the company, but your standards are so high. Nobody can meet them. So they're just compliant with you and they're not doing what you want. And you're getting very frustrated about it. And so she helped me to start to walk the floor meet some people, meet them where they are, talk about your weekend, talk about their weekend, learn about their families, tell them about your family. And as simple as that sounds, Damon, to think, well, geez, why would you do that naturally? That was scary to kind of share stuff as a president of a $300 million company in a big corporation, but that was like magic. I mean, people started getting more engaged. And then from there, she said, I think it's time you tell your story at a Toastmasters event which is a global company around leadership and public speaking. I did tell my story. And what I thought would happen is people would think less of me when reality is they embraced me. And I learned other people that had their own stories. And there were a couple of people who cried. And I started to realize the power of this commitment to other people and to try to build these intentional relationships. And Doran continued to teach me and train me. And I, I can't thank her enough. She changed my life because of it. Mm. Ultimately, I started to parlay that into me and my leadership team, and I just started to say, tell me your story, and I started to really build meaningful, intentional relationships and understand where people are coming from, and once you do that, it's powerful. Yeah. 
Can you take me back to two moments? First, I want to hear about your first walk through the plant floor. Do you remember Doran taking you down and and these first few steps of you coming down from what is in effect, it seems, sounded like probably from the floor's view, the ivory tower, you know, the king is coming down and, you know, they've, it sounds like they'd never really truly met you before. But what did, the, but what did that feel like on your side? You're now down among the people and these are the people that you rely on for this business to be successful, but they also need you to be a real person. What was it like to hit the, the plant floor for that first time? Well, for me, it's interesting. I, I tend to gravitate to those folks. I find they all have some story and they want to feel like they belong. I have this feeling that everyone belongs and you got to build confidence and you can build belief. And so many times those people just feel like they're cogs in a wheel. And I learned that at Russell and I started to do the same thing at Yankee. And boy, those people just saying hi and hey, tell me your story, real simple. And they would share, you know, their family, how they grew up their life. And you'd be like, wow, you could really just feel their energy as they were telling you the story because they were very proud of their life or they were proud of the work they were doing. And so you started to realize, boy, it's one thing to say to people, hey, I pay you X amount per hour. These are the standards we have. If you want to stay employed, do this and you'll be fine. You'll get a value every quarter. I think in general that is old school, but that is a lot of ways people operate and you got to be, you got to have standards. Yes. And you got to have some way to measure people. But when you take the time to just say, tell me your story and understand people and know where they're coming from, the effort, the energy, and the commitment versus the compliance. But like right today, I think statistically 68% of employees today are just enough work to stay not being fired. And so that walk and that time to go meet these people was extraordinarily valuable because then when you started to meet these people, the productivity and the enjoyment and the equipment of the company elevates. That's really amazing. How about the moment that you first had gone through, you know, Toastmasters is a process of learning to speak publicly. And, you know, it's my understanding the exercises can be everything from, you know, talk about this pencil to talk about your deepest, darkest secret or whatever the personal thing is. What was it like mm -hmm. for you to stand before an audience having lived your life closed off to this part of opening yourself about being an adoptee. And now you're about to speak about it publicly in front of an audience. How did it feel to stand up and do that? Well, a couple of things. It was the first time I had to do something like that, but it was also the first time that I felt I was in a safe, comfortable environment because the people that were part of Toastmasters were people I had met, several HR people, some of the folks from working in the plant. So I had met these people and they had been very supportive of me for various parts of it. And I thought, wow, I'm actually going to be in a room where I won't feel like I'm judged. Ironically, you get evaluated. So it's, it's kind of an ironic thing to me to say I won't get judged. And so I, you get judged from a how well are you communicating your story versus, wow, this guy's a you know knucklehead or what's wrong with him kind of thing. That was a big deal, but to walk in that room knowing that I'm not in that room with people who are there to judge me, whether I'm a good person or a bad person, more to help me be better was powerful. But I would tell you, I still have the video, by the way. I saved it. If you 
could see my legs. I was behind a podium. You would have seen, and my pants weren't loose that day. You would have seen a lot of shaking legs. Mm-hmm. That's what I remember. Yeah. So Doran told you something incredibly important about your own journey. She said it was time. Tell me a little bit about what she told you. Well, she she could tell that I had the qualities of a very good leader, and she could also tell. And this is her, you know, words later. She also knew that people really, really, really wanted to help me on the journey. And so she just, I, I guess that's why she's in the role she's in and the work she does. She just didn't feel like the, the message I was giving and the way I was trying to connect was actually working. So I, I'd say that was the biggest thing is she just internally sensed it, felt it, had talked to the team and knew that if I didn't change, it probably wouldn't end well for me. And she just said, Mike, I look back on it and I think to myself, I got to help this guy. And outside of I love you, I need help with the three most powerful words in life. And she's the first person that she said that to me a couple of years ago when we chatted. And I said, yeah, Doran, you're the first person I ever said I need help. In leadership at Yankee Candle, Mike spent time with the CEO, Craig, who had adopted his son. Mike has a lot of respect for Craig, who helped him understand what it might be like to tell his adoptive parents that he wanted to search for his birth family. Craig helped Mike by shedding light on what it would be like if Mike were Craig's son and he was telling his pretend dad the same thing. Mike said it was a game-changing perspective shift. I knew my parents in their mid-70s would probably not be real excited to have me explain that I wanted to be my biological family. So that conversation gave me the 360 viewpoint. I knew how I would see it. I didn't know how my mother would see it. I'm not sure I ever would have known that anyway, but I did talk to people who were on the adoptee side of it, but most people that I had met had never taken the steps. So I didn't have a good viewpoint from that standpoint. But Craig gave me the viewpoint that I didn't have that was critical, and that was the conversation with my parents who adopted me. And so we were at a restaurant with our kids and my wife up in Maine called the China Diner, and the kids and my wife left, and I talked to my parents. And the first thing in my mother's mouth when I said I wanted to go buy, find my biological family was, Michael, does that mean we'll never see you again? Mm. And I had heard that as a Craig had kind of told me that's the way it feels. And so I was prepared for that. And so we talked about it. I said, no, I, I love you guys very much. I'm grateful for everything. You're the parents, my parents. You've raised me. You've taught me everything. And so I, I took it as an opportunity to share with how I really felt about them for the first time probably in a while. Instead of saying, what do you mean? Of course, I'm like trying to get defensive and trying to, why would you think that? Which would have been the way I would if I didn't have that conversation with Craig. So that phase went uh, much better than it could have, gratefully, for that conversation. Information was tough to get in 2010, and the laws at the time didn't allow access to birth records. So Mike hired a company called Omnitrace to support his search. They told Mike that based on his birth year and the fact that he was born in Massachusetts, a state with evolving access laws, they thought Mike had about a 70% chance of getting some information about his biological family within a few months. He completed and returned their paperwork. Mike said ever since he was a kid, he's always liked to retrieve the mail. He used to anticipate his Sports Illustrated magazine's arrival. For Mike, good things arrived in the mail. One day, three months after he started his search, Mike went to the mailbox where he found a thick package. With his wife, Mike sat down at their home office desk and opened the package to find his birth certificate and a pack of information about his biological family. I sat down at the desk, I laid it all out, 
and it said, uh, you know, your father's name and your mother's name, and then I noticed where they were located. Ironically, they lived in Worcester, Massachusetts. I went to college three miles from there, had no idea. Wow. And I lived about a half an hour from them and had no idea, and they lived there their whole life. Mike figured out his birth mother's phone number using the identifiable information Omnitrace had provided. Her name was Alice. Instead of overthinking when to call and what to say, he just decided he needed to call her the next day. When Mike rang Alice's home, a man answered the phone, which Mike wasn't expecting, and it threw him off, but he pressed on. Mike identified himself, then asked if Alice was available. The man said no, she wasn't there, and asked if he could relay a message. Mike had prepared himself to speak with his birth mother, but not to awkwardly convey to this unexpected third party that he was calling for a long-lost reunion, so he hung up. Mike told his wife he would try the number again the next day, a Saturday. When Mike called again, a woman answered the phone. This time, Mike had written down exactly what he wanted to convey. So I kind of scripted out this thought of, I just want to say my name is Mike Thorne, I believe Alice is my mother, and I just want to thank her for what she did. And those words were what I was going to use. And so the next day, I called again. It was on a Saturday, and a lady answered the phone, and I did that. I just said that. I said, hi, my name is Mike Thorne. I believe Alice is my mother, and I just called to thank her for what she did. And I, it probably was less than five seconds, but it felt forever. And the person on the other end of it said, oh, my God. I've heard about you. I'm your sister, Kimberly. Whoa. And at the end of the day, she said, I'm not sure Alice will want to talk to you. But she goes, I sure do. Here's my cell phone number. I wrote it down. She said, I'm going shopping with Alice. I think the next day I will you know, tell her you called. And then if she doesn't call you, I certainly will. And so I was at a Starbucks with a friend of mine driving home. And uh, the phone rang. And I could see that it was a 5-0 area code, which is Bristol, Massachusetts. So I pulled off to the side of the road and uh, hit the green button and said, hi, this is Mike. And she said, Mike, this is your mother, Alice. And it's the first time I heard a voice in, you know, 46 years. Mm. And she did ask me to read the birth certificate. I didn't have it with me. And she said, well, call me next week. I think it was like Saturday or Sunday. And I said, no, Alice, I'm five minutes from home. I'm going to call you when I get home. Mm. And so I did. And she said, Mike, I am your mother, but that's not your father. I'm very ashamed about what happened, but I hope someday you'll forgive me and we can meet. And that's how the journey started, and we ultimately did meet uh, a few weeks later. Wow, that is crazy. Tell me about that. Tell me about that meeting. Like, how did you even get that set up, and where'd you go? What'd you do? Well, I was at work, and I was leaving work, and there was a gas station convenience store not too far from the office and I was right for the highway and I had about an hour and 30 minute ride to their house. We set up a time that she uh, picked and I went and I bought the newspaper from that day because it was my birthday and I was about a water and a snack for the ride and I drove out and I started to hit you know, that sort of anxiety and panic about what I'm doing which seemed like a great idea and was like exciting all of a sudden was oh my god what if she abandons me what if she doesn't want to talk to me and all those nine-year-old boys started coming back. And somehow, instead of the car pulling away, I think, although we didn't have drive-it-yourself cars then, the car somehow pulled into the driveway. She asked me to bring sort of my life story. So I had a book I put together with some pictures. And I grabbed it, left the cell phone in the car, and took the short walk up the steps and then knocked on the door. 
And, you know, it felt again like two minutes. I'm sure it was 10, 15 seconds. And when the door opened, Damon, she's short. I looked in her eyes. Her eyes were mine. And I knew right there that was my mom. And we hugged forever and then spent the next five hours uh, catching up on 46 years of my life. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Did I hear you correctly? Did you say that day was your birthday? Well, it was my birthday because it was a rebirth day because, in essence, I'm meeting my mom for the first time. So it wasn't my true birthday, but it was definitely, you know, when you have your birthday, you buy a paper because you remember what was going on the day you were born. And I bought the paper that day because I thought, so first time I'm going to meet my mom. And to me, it was not my official birthday when I was born, but I also felt it was a rebirth kind of day. So I still have the paper of that day, uh, of that day, Taylor Swift was on the cover of Life section, and she's someone I admire today. Believe I'm embarrassed to say that people probably laughed. But, uh, <laughs> people wonder how I ever got connected to Taylor Swift. That's how. And she was on the cover that day. Wow. And a big fan of music. But yes, I, I my actual birthday is September 15th. So a side note is my name was Dwayne back then, and then they got changed to Michael. And my siblings came out of the house a few hours in. She said, would you like to meet your siblings? I said, yes. So they were a different father, and one of them was Dwayne. And he was blown away that my name was Dwayne. And I think the story was my mother decided that, you know, when I was born, she couldn't hold me at the hospital. So she said she loved music, and there was some musician, his name was Dwayne. I can't remember his last name, and that's how I got the name of Dwayne. And she said, when I lost you and had another son, I decided that his name should be Dwayne, so I'll never forget you. And he got married on September 14th, and my birthday is September 15th. And she said, every year that allowed me to remember you every year, and I was wondering what happened to you. So it's kind of ironic how it all played itself out. That is really unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. That you met a brother who had was given the name that you were given at birth so that your birth yeah. mother couldn't forget you. Wow. Yeah. And the irony that he was married near your birthday, such that the dates would be reminders as well. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Man, that's cool. Well, look, they had a, you know, they had a very, very hard life. And I, you know, instead of being angry and upset, I, I was really a chance to scan the room and to really get a sense and realize I was actually very blessed and very fortunate. My mother could have made a very, very different choice and she could, I couldn't even be here. Um, so I really, those five hours of exhausting Got back in the car. We decided I'd meet again, but I just really needed to process it all. I had it was just a lot to take in, and I got back in the car and I left my phone in there. My wife had called and texted so many times because not only did they say my mother and my sister said we didn't know if you were a monster, we had no idea who was coming to the house, we didn't know if this was real. My sister said I was only here at the beginning because I was like, well, I don't have a texting mom because God knows who this guy is. Maybe it's a joke. Maybe it's you know, who knows? It could be fishing or whatever they call it. She said, we had no idea. And uh, my wife was feeling the same way. And so I got in the car and had all these messages. She was freaking out, wondering where I was and what happened. <laughs> and I wasn't conscious of my phone there. So I think both of us were wondering what would happen I knocked on that door. And so I've always believed in life. You just got to you got to knock on the door because you just got to keep moving forward. And so. It was a, a good experience. I'm very, very blessed. It doesn't always work for everybody, for me. And I just have decided since then I've got to continue to be a better human being and be grateful versus resentful moving forward. And I've tried to live my life that way since in the last 10 years, especially. 
You told me the last time we talked that right when you were leaving, your sister said something really poignant to you. Yeah, she said, Michael, before you leave, she said, you obviously have won the financial game of life. She said, but I'm really, really sad. You missed out on the community we built here. We've you know, all lived together, been through the good times and bad times together. We share stories. We take care of each other. We support each other. We're always there. Don't judge each other. And she said, I'm so, so sad you missed all those moments and those opportunities to build that community with us. And, you know, on, on one hand, I was just, I was so taken aback and just felt like a punch in the gut, like, wow, you're right, I missed all that. But it was also an opportunity to realize how powerful that was. Here's people that had to stay one step ahead of the landlord and kept moving and had all kinds of complexities in their life, and yet they just had built a community of people. They trusted each other. They took care of each other. They were there for each other. And I thought, wow, here I've lived my whole life worried about building this trusted relationship. And here's someone who's been through hell and back 10 times probably worse than I've had it. And yet they taught me a very viable lesson. So yeah, when I left there, I was like, oh my God, it just really transformed me in so many ways. And I believe life is a bunch of transformations and that was a big one. So thank you for reminding me of that. Of course. No, that I thought that was really powerful that she recognized what had transpired and what could have happened, right? The yeah. idea that you very much could have been in the same house together, but unfortunately that you weren't. And it's just right. really interesting to see that she immediately had what it sounds like is a similar sort of empathy and ability to sort of analyze people that you have said you have honed that she could see quite clearly yeah. who her brother was standing before her and who he is as a result of adoption versus who he might have been as part of this family. It's fascinating. Yeah, and she said to me after that time that she said, she said it's amazing. Like, you always know when to call me, text me when I'm having a bad day, I need a lift. She goes, I don't know how you do it. Mike said he was sad that he never met his birth father. The man had a criminal record of breaking and entering, and the family said the guy probably wouldn't have wanted to meet Mike anyway. For Mike, a man whose inner nine-year-old boy fears abandonment, avoiding that secondary rejection of his birth father may have been an odd blessing in disguise. Still, the family said Mike walks like his birth father, and they speak fast in a similar way. Mike is grateful that he was able to learn about his birth father from his maternal family. Louis was his name, but I you know, wish I could have spent some time with him. But sometimes life doesn't work the way you want it to, and you just have to respect what happened and just try to you know, be grateful for what you got out of it and the opportunities you have with people. Recall that Mike said in his youth he harbored some anger and fear, so I wondered if those feelings were gone. He told me he has learned to react differently in various situations, empathizing instead of lashing out and being what he called carefrontational. We talked about Mike's life philosophy these days and how he's doing post-reunion. Well, two things. One is you have, you have to come to the realization, which I did. Not everyone's out to get you. Not everyone's challenging you as a human being. Not everyone's out to try to submarine you or abandon you. And, and that was the big game changer for me because when that is the mindset you have, when you get challenged, your body language, your... Uh, willingness to challenge somebody back and take a very confrontational approach was was just something I led with. And just because I had a leadership role, in a lot of ways, people accepted and just said, oh, that's just Mike, he's Jekyll and Hyde. Some days he's in a good mood, some days he's not. 
So the direct answer is that really was crucial for me to not approach every time a situation arose that was difficult was to think about being on the side of the table with that person and try to be really conscious about where is it coming from, what's going on here. And so sitting on their side of the table versus the other side and saying, okay, where are they trying to screw me here? Why are they trying to come at me? And that's when you move to this confrontational term, which is a vistage term, which is a global organization that does a lot of coaching with executives. And I've picked up that term the last couple of years, but that's the difference. And so now when I have conversations with people, if, if seven out of the 10 times I used to be confrontational for fear of being abandoned or being challenged and someone questioning me, it's now seven out of 10 times I go the other way and I try to process it, slow down, try to understand where they're coming from. And that has been a huge, huge benefit as a father, as a husband, and as a leader. Because I have my own issues working my wife and kids on some of the stuff, trying to solve everything or trying to protect myself and not show vulnerability as a father and as a husband. The reality is they actually expect some of that. And so I've, I've evolved that way as a husband and a father also, and as a friend. Mm-hmm. That's really amazing. I'm wondering about your return to your adoptive parents after this reunion experience. You've met people who recognize that, you know, you could have been part of their family. You've seen a woman who, you know, wanted to meet you and your adopted mother expressed her concerns about whether she would ever see you again after reunion. How was the return to your adoptive parents and and how are they in your reunion? They're they're fine. I, I would say they never really wanted to acknowledge, spend a lot of time with it. And on so many levels, Damon, I'm a connector. I like to have people meeting. And so I try to pull people together. It's just how I lead. And I think what I've learned over the years, you know, my dad passed away a few years ago. You know, that generation grew up when, you know, adoption wasn't spoken about. And it was a lot of secrecy and awkwardness and uncomfortableness. And so I've learned to respect that for them, they didn't really have a lot of interest in meeting and connecting and making a bigger family and, and embracing all this. I think they just accepted it. And I had a hard time with that at first because I thought it's so cool. We're all together. We're going to have a relationship. Isn't it cool? These are my, you know, you guys raised me. And again, it goes back to what I was saying about how I've evolved as a leader. It's, you know, sometimes you have to ask, am I the right person to say something or do something? And in this case, I can't force that. That's not something you force. It has to be organic and natural. And they weren't interested in it, and they just didn't engage on it. So I, I would say it's fine. My mother and I, she's the rock of the family, and she's at her age now. We just have a great relationship, and I respect them. You know, every time I think about all the stuff that went on, I have a lot of respect for what they went through. But they just never expressed an interest or engaged. And my mother, on the other side, my biological mother's never really expressed an interest. She's got a lot of health issues, which probably contributes to it. Not to say that if I put them together now, they would have a terrible time, but I'm not sure it's worth the stress and aggravation when I put together. Sure. Yeah, that would probably be more for you than yeah. for her. I understand completely. It's It might not be worth it to even try to invest in it, especially if she's comfortable. If she's good yeah. with the fact that you've made reunion happen and you're fine and you and by you, you're fine, I'm saying you two together are fine. You may have noticed Mike has mentioned several times a concept of personal trust communities. I asked Mike what a personal trust community is and what his work is in this space. I call them personal trust communities, and I believe it's around your health and wellness as a human being. 
and we spend too much of our time taking care of others and blame, complain, defend when we have issues in our life. And to me, it's if you stop and pause and think about yourself owning your story, understanding your story, everybody should know how they're feeling personal, professional, and health-wise. And sitting in that and understanding it, appreciating it, and owning it is something that we don't do enough of. And I, I believe that hurts our relationships with our spouses, our partners, our kids, our friends, our work relationships. And the other side of this piece of paper is to think about what is that North Star? Like, where do you get joy and happiness? Or where are you trying to get joy? It's a great book about the Book of Joy with Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu that speak of this. And if people can get comfortable with their own circumstances where they are today, like I just talked about, it took me a while to get comfortable. Okay, I was adopted. It was an idea, but I got it. I got to live with it and understand it and just learn from it and be a better human being. And then what do I want to make for myself that North Star? And you leave a gap in that piece of paper, and that's where you build a personal trust community. And I refer to it as PIES because I like acronyms. So who are the people in your life that can help you be physically active? Because there's enough studies that talk about the importance of being physically active. And that could just be taking walks. It doesn't have to be running a marathon. Right? It's just simple things you can do. Who are those people in your life? It could be someone you're close to. It could be someone you listen to a podcast, respect, a book you read, whatever. And then intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and socially. And if you can find these people, and these are the kind of people, Damon, that they don't judge you, they hold you accountable, and they trust you. And when you share with those people where you're going, like that North Star, and that North Star should get you excited. It should feel scary, but also not dangerous. And when you lay that out, in other words, I call it declaring where you're going in life. It'll shock you how many people start showing up to help get you there. Wow. Once you've got these people around you, you say, okay, you know, my spiritual people are going to be, you know, Father John is one for me. Doran's one of my emotional people that she keeps me guard, you know, on, on track all these years. And my wife and all these people holding up a trampoline. You know, you're in the middle of a trampoline, bouncing up down, having a great day. But other days you start getting close to the edge. And if you don't have these people holding up on that trampoline, you're going to fall off and get hurt. Could be emotionally hurt, could be physically hurt, and so on. These people move the trampoline. They continually move it so you're always centered in there. And when you find those people, they need to have competency in those areas, the physical, intellectual, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. Otherwise, they're not going to be the best help for you. And they're going to be people you trust. And the minute you declare where you're going and you reach out to them, you've got to use those three most powerful words outside of I love you and say, I need help. And you specifically tell them what you're looking help for. And when you have the right people, watch out. It's, it's really powerful what those people will do, and it will unleash you. And I, I call it unleashing your greatness. And that's this kind of trust work I teach. And I believe when you do that kind of work on yourself first, you'll be so much better for the rest of you in your life. And you will show up for the people you love and care with as the best of yourself versus what a lot of people do, which is the rest of yourself. It's like whatever you got left over for the people you care the most about, it's crazy. It's just absolutely crazy. Wow. Unreal, Mike. You, it's As I reflect on what you've told me about how closed off you were as a child and sort of you know, demolished by the news that you were adopted and, and fearful of, you know, abandonment to hear all of this growth through your life with people like Doran and others who have, 
been these elements of what you called pies? Was it physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual? And social. And social was is really fascinating to see this this person go from you know this closed off you know loner child to this individual who has figured out how to help other people find the community around them that's going to support the trampoline to keep them from bouncing off center. It's really fascinating. Well done. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's been a journey though, Damon. It's not a, you know, whoever's listening to this, don't assume you just do it once and it's over with. It's a, it's a never ending journey, but I learned a couple of things several years ago. One is you can't try to boil the ocean and you got to take small wins. You fall off the horse is the second thing. It's just you can't allow yourself to have a bad day and say, see, I can't do it. And that's why these people are so critical in your life. Uh, I've got a guy, Tim Dixon, who I will literally text him and say, Tim, talk me off the ledge. And that may sound morbid to some people listening, but for Tim, that's a signal he knows what that means. Tim doesn't call me back two days later and say, sorry, I was busy. He flip and drops everything and finds time to be present and listen with me. And he doesn't give me the answers. He just gives me the room and the ability to breathe and to think through things and to calm me down, and then I can move on in my life. And so Tim has unique skills in that way. I have other friends of mine that are good athletes, so I could talk about sports, but I don't have a lot of those people that are like that. And if you're able to find those people in your life, oh, God, it's so valuable. And yeah. Spend time. Yeah, I agree. The, the people that you turn to for specific things are unbelievably valuable and i hope that everybody can find those kinds of supports in their lives mike i appreciate you so much for being back here with me man i, I really appreciate it it's been fascinating to hear your story and and i'm really glad for your development and the work that you're helping other people to do so thanks for being here with us man no, i appreciate it thanks for your support of the national council of adoption we're obviously doing a lot of good work around education and research and advocacy work to help those like me and others to go down the journey. So I thank you for all your support and for the great work you do on the podcast and thank for you. having me. Thanks, man. Take care. All the best to you. Okay. You Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. Mike is a late discovery adoptee. When he was told at nine years old that he was adopted, the news sent major cracks through the foundation of the life he thought he knew. He talked about his fear of being relinquished again and some of the rejections that he felt throughout his life that reinforced those feelings. But Mike also had his personal trust community with people like Doran, who saw that he had holes to fill and pushed him towards the mission of reuniting with his birth family. I was glad to hear that his family was accepting of his return and recognized how much time and how many experiences they had lost in their years apart. Mike is the new chairman of the board for the National Council for Adoption, or NCFA. The organization is an authority on adoption issues, working to improve the public's understanding of adoption, and advocating for policies and services to promote the best interests of children everywhere. Who better to chair the board than an adoptee like Mike? You can get more information about building your personal trust community at his website, MikeThorne.co. That's M-I-K-E-T-H-O-R-N-E dot C-O. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Mike's journey that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I really?
If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow the show at facebook.com slash really. If the show is meaningful to you, you can support me with a contribution to keep it going on patreon.com slash really. Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. And you can check out the story of my adoption journey, Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list. 